Hello and welcome to Cinephils, take 10. Uh, this week, we're talking about Blade Runner, uh, the classic sci-fi film um, by Ridley Scott. And uh, we got here because of um, a connection with uh, the conversation, and that was Harrison Ford, uh, who stars, of course, in um, Blade Runner, and many would call it um, you know, one of the finest uh, sci-fi films, um, at least in my lifetime. I, I would say that. How about you, Rob? Absolutely. I think uh, Blade Runner's in my top three movies of all time and uh, sci-fi movie. Uh, me, yeah, it's definitely up there. It's it's amazing. It's a brilliant movie uh, through and through. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. There should be a lot to talk about. There, there sure is. So um, maybe we'll we'll go back to classic format and, and first talk a bit about the um the history and the cinematography of this film. Um, so um, I've, I've been studying this film and writing about it actually for quite some time, as I'm sure you have as well. Um, and um, it, it has an amazing uh, history in terms of its development. And there's certainly a lot to talk about cinema, in the cinematography department. Um, but um, our, the, one of the, one of the things that, uh, is striking about the production of this film is that uh, most of it is filmed in one uh, studio location, right? Yeah, I believe so. Wasn't it? Uh, where was it? Was it Pinewood? It, yeah, it, it's a yeah UK studio, um, and um, this studio um, manages to feel so totally open and unclaustrophobic. Um, and Ridley Scott does phenomenal work with um, the the design. The, the cinematographer Jordan Krenwith, uh is the art director, um, and um, they just designed a most unique world uh, that was also so incredibly plausible. Absolutely, yeah. I uh, the the cinematography in this in this movie uh, from the opening shot after the scroll is breathtaking throughout. Uh, and it is a, an amazing, it's a beautiful self self-enclosed world, uh, which when I first saw it, which was around when it came out in 82, um, it did look like how one might imagine 2020 or 2019 looking like where the movie was set. And, uh, and it kind of does like, you know, if I was I had the pleasure of uh, spending quite a bit of time in uh, Seoul, South Korea and uh, and a bit of time in Tokyo. And uh, the Blade Runners set was modeled on uh, the Shinjuku area of uh, Tokyo. And there were certainly numerous streets uh, in Seoul uh, that look like they could have been taken right from Blade Runner. And uh, yeah, so it really was, uh, they did an amazing job with uh, cinematography and making the world seem so, so very real. So I remember when I saw this with my dad in a movie theater, that opening scene right after the the title and the and the the audio comes up and then you see these flares of the of the um you know in in Los Angeles in the afternoon right and it looks dark as as night um and I gasped and I have to say when I rewatched it again I gasped something about the Vangelis score and the the scope of that um, cityscape he lays out before us makes you feel like you've been thrust right into it. Uh, again, it starts with a God's eye point of view. Um, and the, the um, skyscrapers and mixed with industrial and mixed with these street scenes just um, uh, are a tremendous um, act of world building um, by Ridley Scott in, in designing this. And you feel like Los Angeles 2019 is plausible. Uh, you feel uh, you feel it's um, you know this, and you can already sense the environment has gone to hell. Um, that's that's a theme that I think uh, accurately predicted twenty nineteen LA. Um, not quite a, not quite to the same scale, but um, and then and then you have um, these edifices that just loom, um, and I 
I was talking with our friend Kim about this. I think so. He did this after he did uh, Aliens. Alien, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah Alien was seventy nine, um, and he was working with H.R. Giger on Alien, um, and some of the design aspects uh, that um, uh, he had gotten from Giger for Alien, I think, are you know we can witness that in some of these scenes. Yeah, I suppose we can. I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, looking at it now, I yeah, I get that. So the Tyrell um, Corporation, that that big um, pyramid, that seems right out of Giger. Uh, Giger yeah. didn't have a role in this one, I don't think, um, but there's inspirations clearly. Yeah, I, I took the pyramid well to be like from Babylon, uh, yeah. and um, and also uh, Fritz Lang. Uh, Metropolis. There's a lot of Fritz Lang in this film, yeah. actually. Um, one of the one of the uh, so we can talk about um, a little more about the the production, but one of the Fritz Lang elements in this. Do you know where he got? Um, so, do you know some of the tricks he got from Lang for this? Oh uh, no, tell us about it. Yeah, um, you notice, of course, that the replicant's eyes glow. Now, this is a theme. So the eyes, recurring eyes in the in the story are um, uh, a motif that a lot of people talk about when they're talking about Blade Runner. The glowing eyes is an actual um, cinematic trick uh, that he uh, he got straight from Fritz Lang. It's a reflection from a, from either a mirror or a piece of glass um, at a 45 degree angle from below um, that is angled right into the camera. Um, off the eye. Oh, I didn't know that. I I didn't know where it came from that uh, trick. I and uh, I knew it was a motif in Blade Runner, but I thought it w- occurred um, rather randomly. And then by the time the final cut uh, came out in two thousand seven, where which was the only one that Ridley Scott had full editorial control over, that uh, that then he just asserted it uh throughout like uh in the earlier in the earlier uh editions or versions of the movie it didn't always work so i thought uh it was just more by accident than anything else but yeah yeah why do you think he was focusing on on the eyes so much so we get right after the flares we get an eye right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well they the flares are through an eye uh, aren't they not? Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's the city. It's, uh, yeah, uh, Harrison, well, it's Deckard looking at the city and then the, then it's a reversal to, and he sees the flares and then it's the reversal, uh, the reverse shot of the flares being reflected in his eye again. That's so, right. Yeah, it's both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it was. um, so I another another thing that that interested me um, rewatching. So this must have been the dozenth or so time I've seen it, um, and probably the sixth or seventh time I saw the final cut. Um, the um, the the eye. The, so that was Deckard's eye, right? That because that that was definitely his eye viewing the, the uh, Los Angeles. He is not ambiguous anymore to me um he is he is uh as suspiciously a replicant as as he as i um as any any of the um people in in the movie i would say this is an ongoing debate about blade runner but the final cut i think makes it pretty clear yeah so by the final cut uh but i think he was always meant to be um a Blade Runner. Uh, then, however, the editorial process uh, and the various cuts of the film uh, sort of obscured that. But by the the final cut in two thousand seven, it is absolutely explicit to me that he's that he is a replicant. Um, I suppose like the tip off is like Edward James Olmos's character uh, giving right. all this all the little matchstick men or tinfoil uh, origami figures uh, to indicate. Uh, what his uh, 
what are the themes of Deckard's consciousness, uh, uh, the symbolic representations of what Deckard must be thinking, and now how would how would uh, Edward J. almost have that uh, insight unless Deckard's consciousness was essentially programmed? Right. And, and I think, so we, we, one of the things that made it really clear for me on this viewing was we don't know anything about this past. We know he left the force, right? It starts in this sort of classic noir setup, right? Mm -hmm. He could have been, um, you know, um, any, any detective from, from a noir film. He's, um, and he's thrust back into this, right? The work comes and gets him and pulls him back in. Um, because he's, he is special, right? He's got something that nobody else who was a Blade Runner had. And that is this actual ability to get him, right? Yeah. And the old magic as, yeah. uh, the one, as the police chief, uh, says, Emmett, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. um, that guy is also right out of classic noir, right? And, yeah. and a, and a racist to boot. Yes. He's almost like our Orson Welles um, uh, character from um, Touch of Evil. Yep, he is. Yeah, very much so. Uh, the fallen cop. And like, I guess it was sort of evidenced. I'm thinking of Deckard's uh, status, uh, ontological status as a replicant. It was kind of uh, hinted at uh, in e earlier versions just by the amount of punishment that he takes. Right. Um, in this movie, it's like no, no human should be able to take that much punishment, physical abuse and survive. Like I'm talking the scene where he's going after the loader, uh, the ammo loader in the street. And, uh, like he got so beat up there that he should have suffered far more than a, than a broken jaw because, we already know, like, and this is in every cut of the movie, that the ammo loader guy is incredibly strong. He can, he can, yeah. he, yeah, Leon, he can move like 400 pound uh, artillery shells with, without breaking a sweat all day. And he, he beats the crap out of Deckard. And it's like, if Deckard was a human. He would have been a million, in a million pieces. Yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't have been alive, uh, simply put. And then there's the little, uh, in Deckard's apartment when he's with Shong Yun in all of the the cuts there is the the all the versions of the film there is the the image of the photographs uh the black and white photographs and we know that yeah we know that uh the replicants have a real thing for memories and photographs in particular because uh it's not uh it's not Sean Young's character. Uh it is uh it nor is it Daryl Hall. It's the other woman, uh Joanna Cassidy's uh character. We yep. find uh the photographs in her uh in her drawer when he's investigating the uh who she was. So there's but these things are tangential and by the time they get to the we get to the two, 2007 cut. It's absolutely, in my mind, explicit that uh, that uh, Deckard is a Blade Runner or is is a replicant. Yeah. Yeah. So it is um, it was a crime at the time that the studio had demanded the narration. Yes. Um, which um, which, you know, now that we have access to this this cut and a couple other cuts that had omitted the narration. Um, it, the narration ruined the film and made it a totally different film um, and, and removed ambiguity, ambiguity in the wrong ways um, and turned it into a detective film, basically, um, which it is not. It is a rumination on, on humanity. Um, it, is a, it is a rumination on on um on god uh in many ways um and just so many different uh angles to attack this film and and and, and appreciate it um i was struck again also by the role of rachel this 
um, you know, the perfect replicant, right? Like, like Deckard, I would say, in the sense that she is, she has no, no, um, expiration date. Yes. Um, and, and how, just how uh, angelic she is. The oh, she's, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. She's absolutely breathtaking in this, uh, in this film, not, not just how she looks, but right. like how, how she carries herself, uh, from the very first introduction in, uh, in, uh, the Tyrell corporation throughout, she is just, yeah, it's magnificent. Uh, in some ways, uh, she's like, um, the movie, she's like the angel of death, except so much better done. Uh, yeah from uh the bob fossey movie right. uh you know like it this was really just a mesmerizing performance on her uh, her part and it was so it was so richly complemented by both the cinematography and the amazing soundtrack by vangelis like that uh rachel's theme from this movie uh but yeah it's it's just an amazing piece of music uh and it's yeah uh she was an amazing she was an amazing contribution to this film uh it's it's the finest she's she's ever been and um it's a shame because you know she had a lot of potential it's a shame she had trouble getting comparable roles after that because she really does she such such um, poise and and purposefulness in every move and word and exactly the right note on every line that she delivers. Yes. Yeah. Like it was uh, like particularly during the void conf test, which apparently takes her like 180 questions for uh, for Deckard to think that she might be a replicant. Uh, whereas uh like whereas for the first replicant it took took like three questions like leon you know it was like yeah yeah okay like he doesn't know what a tortoise is and now he's freaked out yeah he's clearly a replicant whereas like yeah how she was yeah go ahead no i've been so i'm i'm i've been teaching about in identity theories of identity so it's a it's a particularly timely movie for us to talk about because this notion, right, of piecing together our our past to create ourselves, um, that doesn't only apply to replicants, does it? No. According to Bergson, it's just what we are. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, that's it. It's like, this is what we do. Like, and uh, because for Bergson, while there is a past, uh, memory uh, emerges at the same temporal moment as the present is realized. It's part of the realize it's part of the actualization of the present. So your present identity, what you are at this moment for Bergson basically is the birth of your memories too, uh, right. which is uh, I think what clearly what the replicants are doing, you know, like their memories are implanted in them and then they, but they have no past other than what they were, uh, the narrative they string together at this moment. So they're trying to create this. So these ones that have expiration dates that live only four years because they don't have a past, they don't have their identity. They have to piece it together on the fly. Um, and, that's this obsession over the storing of the photographs. That's this, um, you know, the sort of vacancy of identity um, that people like um, Roy Batty and Leon and, and the others have to try to uh, um, make up for. But that's only because they've only been around for four years, right? So you and I, we're doing the same thing. We're piecing together our pasts. Yeah, like, uh, like, and this is like, the big like coming at it from like the Deleuze perspective it's like yes we are all simulacra we're all copies of identity and we like the world is nothing but constant differentiation and uh 
identity like Deleuze takes the exact takes the Nietzschean line through Bergson and he says yes the I is a complete fiction Nietzsche and then uh from Bergson he's like yes and this and why is the I a fiction because it doesn't persist through time as without modification uh, for Berg's for Bergson it's like at each moment it is your past and your present are simultaneously created um and there do they do they have a tether to something prior no not for Bergson like for Bergson this is all occurring on the virtual level which is like the ideal level anyway like you know like it's not real uh or it's not real in the sense of being physically causal but you're it is real on the level of of pure thought of ideality so long story short for Bergson uh and Deleuze we are you and I and Roy Batty and Harrison Ford and Rachel, we are all just copies cobbling it together <laughs> as we go along uh, in reference to some things that might have physically occurred or might not have physically occurred. Uh, and, and, it, and, we, and we try to piece this together and we create myths uh, to try to make sense of it. Um, one of those myths is a creator myth. So Tyrell um, looms, I think, importantly in this story um, as that creator, uh, a blind God, right? Again, eyes are so important. Um, his, he's, his eyes must be worse than mine. Um, he is, he is um, so vulnerable and weak up in his high castle, right? Um, and his perfect creation, who's also very, um, I noticed again um, this time that how, you know, Batty and Daryl Hannah's characters are very Aryan, um, blonde, very white Aryan. Um, they're coming up to, to vanquish their, their creator. Yes. Yeah. The blonde beast uh, is uh, coming up to uh, kill God, uh, essentially, is like, yeah, Nietzsche would have seen a lot in this movie. Uh, I I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, like not only was uh, Tyrell uh, like his he was blind at the end, like that's how Roy Batty ends up taking him out by pushing his eyeballs into his head. Which is what Leon was trying to do to to um, Deckard when Deckard uh, when he was sh- shot by uh, Rachel. Yeah, but before that, like um, Tyrell had terrible vision. He had the the goggle glasses on, right. um, and yet at the sa- and yet at the same time he ha- he occupied the highest ground uh, in the city uh, for. For miles and miles, like to borrow that who line, he could see on the who he could see for miles and miles and miles. Like, you know, he is so he's sort of this all seeing God that is, in fact, or there's the myth of the all seeing God, the eye of Ra, uh, mm-hmm. which which is usually in the center of a pyramid in, well, at least on the dollar bill. Um Whereas here, that it's reduced to being utterly blind and dead. And I thought that was, yeah, that's a fun ocularity in this movie is an amazing way to trace it through. Uh, yeah. what are th- it, it, it's, it's definitely a purposeful motif and serves a lot of roles, I think. Yes. And um, so, um, yeah, and then there's the whole um, where do the replicants uh, how do they get on the trail of uh, J.F. Sebastian? Uh, it's essentially by going to the eye manuf- the eye manufacturer. Yeah, the like uh, which is uh, uh, James Hong, uh, Hannibal Chu. Uh, right. That yeah, and they trouble in little China. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was uh, you know I thought just yes. That is a 
a fascinating look at it. And uh, yeah, no pun intended look at it. But anyway, um, right. Um, so, uh, well, this wasn't uh, like this was, of course, based on a, a movie or a screenplay. Well, Her- Hampton Fancher and David Peoples wrote the screenplay based on uh, Philip K. Dick's novel or novella or short story. It was more of a short story than a novella. Uh, have you ever do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Have you ever read a have you ever read that or any I read all of Philip K. Dick's stuff? Actually, I was a big Gavin fan. I used to read him and Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, I was obsessed with both of them for a while. Sort of um, mind bending seventies, uh, uh, hallucinatory sci-fi stuff. That was my bag, man. So, uh, yeah, I read, it. I read it and, and they're good, but you know, they, you know, Dick, Dick was a interesting guy. He had, um, uh, do you know the story of his psychotic break? No, I heard he was, uh, he did have some, uh, issues. Uh, yeah. so he had, um, well, he was, a he was a terrible abuser of amphetamines and, and had experimented with other drugs, but at a period when he was under a lot of stress, he had, um, a vision. He had, a um, a religious experience. Uh, where um, he says uh, he was, it, he, it was revealed directly into his brain all sorts of truths from a, a being that was from another dimension. Um, he uh, had, um, yeah, he had a psychotic break as a result. Um, so it, it been a, a recurring theme in all his stuff, of course, is about the the very tenuous nature of our consciousness of our existence. He was convinced that he was, um, uh, that we're living in a sort of sim- simulation, uh, where the Roman empire still exists, for instance. Um, but we're convinced it doesn't somehow, um, fascinating stuff. But you, if you read his, his work in light of what we know about this, this incident, um, you start to see his uh, his you know the the reason for his obsession with um, the the notion of being deceived by reality about um, you know doubt about our existences and of course it's throughout this story um, and I think that the movie manages it in this in this edit to plunge us into a similar sort of um, line of questioning. Absolutely. Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know quite the extent of it uh, about Phil K. Dick. So thank you. I, I was just going with it. The, all I was wondering about is, uh, did you think do androids dream of electric sheep or this screenplay is better? And I was going to say, I, th- I think this screenplay is a bit improved, but. Uh, Sometimes better. Yeah. I, I think that um, again, some of his, I like Ubik in terms of his, his books. I think that's a decent book. For the most part, they're formulaic and um, there's some interesting philosophy stuff in them. But um, yeah, he his that story isn't my favorite. And this movie is among my favorite of all time. So I <laughs> see where my references are. Yeah, I was uh, um, you, you say you were teaching night identity to uh your students uh just recently uh, i've been teaching marx to my students and uh the marxian themes of this movie uh were very evident to me like uh everything you said about the false reality of uh and they're existing something like the Roman Empire. It's like, yes, the Roman Empire is Tyrell, a monolithic corporation uh, that imposes a false, false, rea- a false sense of reality on us all. And that is just capitalism, you know, uh, you know, just capitalism. Like that's <laughs> what capitalism does. It's not a there's no just in front of it. Um, and uh the all-consuming nature of it, uh, of capitalism, how it permeates down to your very, uh, one's very identity and goes as 
grand as now off-world colonies where what are we doing we are employing slave labor we we are employing cheap labor uh who are divested from the fruits of their labor um and it's like this to me was there's some pretty dare i say heavy-handed marxism going on in this uh yeah in this movie yeah, which absolutely. I, so the body is commodified right yes yeah um, quite literally bodies and our bodies are, are both commodified mm-hmm. um the the planet of course is has been wasted yeah and yeah the only place safe that only the rich can go to and the well and in the perfect human specimens right or not the sick or infirm yes. is off yeah. world yes yeah and uh the only light in this movie lit well until like the very last shot is uh the advertisements of corporations Right. Uh, uh, you know, like most of which have gone bankrupt, uh, which is a hilarious little thing like uh, like Pan Am, TWA, uh, Atari. Uh, they're they're all no more, you know, and uh, that was Only like Coca-Cola is still. There. Yeah. Yeah. But it was. But Coca-Cola Classic, not the new Coke, <laughs> which they were advertising. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, yeah. But the, that was the only one that has remained. Uh, and now they make water. Um, yeah, so like, uh, uh, yeah, it was. So, yeah, uh, let's, let's talk a little about the the um, uh, an acronism. So actually, it's interesting. It holds up as well as it does, despite the technological anachronism. Um, there's a lot of things we don't see in here. We see the flying cars, which, you know, if anything, that's the only thing I would have liked to have seen in 2019 was these flying cars um the, but the spinners yeah those those are awesome right and and um that's a great way to to get above the traffic in la for instance absolutely um, and well we kind of now got them with helicopters but uh but only for yeah. the very rich yeah right i mean deckard's got his own flying yeah. car and he can't be that yeah. rich yes um, but, but there's no cell phones which strikes me Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you have to go to these little dial-up booths to to make calls, and and now, you know, having seen um, Villeneuve's um, sequel, which I thought was pretty good, um, I'm not sure how we how we get around this lack of cell phones, um, and um, I didn't see him in that either. Yeah, well, maybe there's like there's the possibility that. Uh... They could just die. There could have been cell phones and then they stopped. Yeah. Like, okay. you, you know, like uh, the same way that, yes, there were once uh, cameras that people carried around and now there aren't anymore. Uh, okay. You know, like uh, that, I'm just purely speculating, you know. You know but, I'm not yeah, complain yeah, because yeah. Scott does put together a really um possible uh, future and he never anticipated that which is interesting yeah. yes um, he never yeah the ecological collapse though he got pretty much dead on uh you know that. yeah, yeah like, that. it's and yeah that's one of the more depressing things about how um in 1982 this movie set a new standard for what a dystopia would look would a dystopian film would look like and uh, the environmental collapse that is self-evident in nearly every shot of this movie um now here we are in 2023 and much of this has come basically true you know i really and it seems that we've just sort of accepted it like you know with uh, a good portion of the planet regularly on fire, uh, warmest, uh, like, shockingly, this winter, 2023, is the warmest winter in the history of Ottawa. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like following the warmest summer on record, following the warmest last year on record, you know, they were really, like, the Ridley Scott here was sounding the alarm bells loud and clear and uh, 
he nails the root of it, right? So it is this corporate, um, uh, you know, profit at all cost mentality. You can see that, you know, um, with the commodification of, of, of bodies and these um, replicants and, you know, the ability to leave a dying planet, uh, nobody, nobody sticks around who cares enough or is able to, to fix it. Right. And that's, you know, and we now, you know, ruminating on Elon Musk, who, who, you know, you could, you could see Tyrell as a sort of um, avatar for Musk, I think. Yeah. Um, All these super, super billionaire pricks, like, yes, they're all building their own little spaceships to like, to shoot up William Shatner into low earth orbit and ultimately to, uh, to go to the moon and then to Mars because like, that's their game plan. And, you know, we can, we can get you off world. Who can uh, help you. So yeah, it's fascinating to watch in light of what's happened in the last Oh, gosh, 40 years since this came out. Yeah, and like the most horrific moments of Marx do not approach how bad Amazon is. You know, like, yeah, you know, like Marx talked about, yes, how capitalism as a system is going to destroy reality as we know it, but it could be stopped and it could be stopped by a by essentially unions as Marx's big answer. And I think that's a good answer. But however, he never saw like um, a corporation enveloping the whole planet like this uh, and like Amazon does. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and Ridley Scott saw this in 1982 and he's like, yeah, OK, there's just going to be one corporation and it is going to be responsible for everything. Uh, including it'll both be your means of salvation or the it'll put forward the means of your salvation and it will affect it will create to the conditions of your own immiseration Uh, you know subjugated if you can't be seen yeah and this is a, a terrifying notion that has become I I suggest a lot more real than anybody would like to admit. And um, like where we have like a story I saw on the news last night about how, about the war in Russia and how the only reason the Ukrainians have Wi-Fi is because of Elon Musk. And now Elon Musk is threatening to pull, uh, to pull the Wi-Fi from the Ukrainians and the, like the claim, but what is remarkable here, it's like, so you have like essentially one corporation um, sh- shutting down what was one of the world's superpowers, uh, namely the Russian advance into the Ukraine, you oh. know, and it's like this was this is a type of power that I think in Marx's most terrifying dark moments, he never saw corporations having this level of influence and control uh this and i think this is precisely the world of blade runner uh this is is, yeah like this is the reality where everything is right down to life itself is controlled by a corporation that's right and and people like deckard you know who is a replicant but who is the most human you know of all of the characters i would say um are left holding the bag yeah are are you know have to have to take all of the the moral blame so it's clear he has morals he has compunctions about what he does for a living he um i mean he takes a lot of physical abuse as well um his boss you can tell hates him (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> treats him like crap, uh, has no respect for him. Um, but he's and he has nothing apparently except this pieced together life of photos on his piano. In a a couple of things I wanted to mention, um, that that apartment of his, um, there were 
interesting design um, elements to that. The, the textures of the walls inside reminded me of um, Mayan or um, Nahuatl or Aztec uh, designs. There hmm. were elements of a, like it felt like a tomb in his in his apartment for some reason. Something about those. You remember the texture I'm talking about? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, that has always been striking to me. Uh, the interior of his apartment. Uh, yeah. And to me, it, it was like it harkened. I didn't draw the Mayan connection, but that's brilliant. I never thought of that. Um, I was I was just uh, thought it was uh, some sort of uh, brutalism sort of thing like this uh, raw, like this unfinished concrete thing going on with a bit of decoration, like a prefab housing thing like they built all through right. Eng England in the. 50s and 60s and, and 70s. Yeah. Uh, Brutalism yeah. is also tomb-like. Yes, it is, yeah. And I thought, so the sense I had in his apartment is of a sort of mausoleum or a tomb. And I, and I thought that was playing an important symbolic role, especially when Rachel joins him in it. Tell and me then, more. What, what were you thinking so I, that I think Deckard is, I mean, all of these replicants are, are somehow already dead. They are, um, they are uh, separated from life. They are, they are constantly, you know, recreating their own identity somehow or trying to piece it together. They're not fully alive until something, something's got to happen. There's, there has to be a, a moment where they get to be alive and, I think that happens for Deckard when in the final scene where Howard um, uh, spares him and then almost, I forget the character almost plays. Uh, Gaff. His name Gaff. is Gaff. Yeah. yeah. And then Gaff um, basically lets him get away. So, and then maybe that's when he gets to finally live and, and he and Rachel will finally live. But anyway, so I felt that they were in a tomb in that apartment of some sort, but that, you know, that, that may be reading too much into the set design, but I, I think, don't think it is. <laughs> I think Scott is pretty purposive in the way he designs everything. Yeah. I, I don't think it was by accident and it does seem to resonate with the, the theme of the movie, like the explicit theme of the movie, like, more human than human is what the replicants are are right. supposed to be and what does that what is one way to parse that phrase okay more than alive well what is the more than alive that's death mm -hmm. you know yeah, like yeah 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 like yeah they've transcended they've transcended humanity it means they've transcended life it means they are dead Right. You know, like it, there is that. Uh, and then you bring in the whole memory theme and it's like, OK, so all of their memories are not their own. Like they are explicitly, well, we are told they're implanted in them. Uh, and so they are the memories. They are memories of a fiction. They are not memories of a life. Uh, and that which has no memory has you could are like one one line of reasoning there would say, okay, well, without memory, there is no interiority. Right. Uh, and without, and that which lacks in interiority, well, we do have a phrase for that. It's dead. You know, like if, if an entity has no interiority whatsoever and has no, then it's a, it's a, either dead or a long way towards being dead. Then it is more akin to a pen knife than it is to a human being, uh, to borrow Sartre's example. Uh, right. You know, like, uh, and it's only the look of the other to, to follow then, Sartre, then, which makes them so alive. Deckard, yeah, yeah. And Deckard and Rachel find that in each other. Yes. And then they're able to be free. Then they're able. So in that, in that, uh, uh, um, and it's a, it's a, that's a disturbing scene, right? Um, where, and and I again, I had this conversation with Kim, our friend Kim, um, that this was a rape, 
This was at least not a consensual act at first. He does yeah. force on her. Yes. Um, How are we to take that? Yeah, there was a. I I think it might be a bit far to say that it was a rape uh, in the sense, like I think that just because uh, I don't see the trauma in uh, in Rachel afterwards at all. So like, uh, but it certainly started off as non. Uh, there were non-consensual elements involved. Right. It, okay. It's yeah. yeah, you know, like it. She wasn't. She wasn't Tippy Hedren traumatized afterwards. Right. You right. know, like she wasn't suicidal afterwards, and uh, you know, and it wasn't uh, anything like straw dogs either. Um, right. Well, you know, she does, and then she. So he commands her until yeah. she commands him too. So they're in a line that she says of her own where, you, where she says, put your hands on me where he commands him. So it has shifted. The dynamic has shifted. It seems to me like it would be a bit far to say that it's a rape, but at the same time, it would be a bit far to say that this was uh, a completely consensual loving act, uh, you know, um, which is, you know, well, if you read Simone de Beauvoir, this is all this is sex is uh rarely that, uh, right. r- rarely just uh, it's rarely hallmark moments. Um, you know, you know, it's like Sartan Simone de Beauvoir did uh explicitly recognize uh the power, the power dynamics and the floating power dynamics involved in in sexual in sexual act and then there's Foucault who who says who takes that and runs with it in his own directions um so but that the power dynamic is fluid between the two of them Uh, yeah yeah uh, uh makes me think that it might that rape is a bit strong here and also because I I don't like yeah, I don't. I don't want to think of. I want to think of Harrison Ford's character, uh, Deckard, as a good character. Um, you know, so yeah, I guess that's a, you know, a good a good entity. I can't call him a person because he's a replicant. But um, yeah, well, you know, we're not computers. We're physical. We're. He is a he's a, a man. He's a human, a more human than human. And I think you're right that his moral status and, and his sense of the, the good is greater than M. Emmett Walsh's, you know, his bosses. Oh, yeah, um, clearly. Yeah. And better than Roy Batty until the very end. Yeah, well, Roy Batty, I don't know. Like, is his character like is his character a villain at all? Uh, there's so. oh yeah i think he's a villain why why make that argument for me he has done questionable things yeah sure i, I think okay. he's committed uh war atrocities in the you know in the battles that he's been in um and you know, not just the murders of the humans that he confronts on earth but i think he's um he he was built to fight wars and he's done he says questionable things. He has, I think, recognized in those questionable things that they are questionable. I think he's aware of morality. Yes, I, well, I certainly agree with that. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'd take it a bit further, though. Like, he's done questionable things, clearly, and then he stopped doing them. Then he came like then he rebelled against his oppressors and came back to Earth and uh, essentially sought justice for himself and his kind. He confronted his maker with the sin of creating him. Yeah, but he, uh, along the way, he le- leaves a trail of innocence as well. I mean, J.F. Sebastian is the sweetest guy 
uh, and he kills him. Yeah. Well, I don't see how that's at all excusable. Sebastian took these guys in when nobody else would have helped them. Yeah, what was Sebastian's role before taking them in? He was a genetic engineer. He helped design them. Yeah. But he's not Tyrell. So so he, he created slaves. He helped create these replicants, yeah. Yeah, but he you also know, like, like I, I, th- I think it's a, I think it's too much to okay. say that uh, J.F. Sebastian was at all innocent. Uh, right. You How know, like, yeah. like he, he was, he was, uh, he was explicitly creating a slave class. He was explicitly doing that. Uh, I like yeah, him. Uh, nice sure, he, he's cute. Yeah, fine. <laughs> but like, like, let's be like, what was his job? His job was yeah. to genetically engineer a life form that is going to be immiserated for their entire existence. And with a brief existence. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and then he's going to hardwire into them their death. Right. You know, well, like. We don't know the extent to which J.F. Sebastian did any of, any of that, but. We do know he was involved and that he's bright. Um, and yeah, possibly he was very much involved. Yeah, like he he was involved enough to be able to play chess with Tyrell, which was apparently basically mm-hmm. untouchable. Right, exactly. Uh, you, you know, like, um, so I'm not saying that he was Hitler, but maybe he was Himmler. Oh boy, poor JF. You, you know, like uh <laughs> you know, like there there is that. And like, you know, like I thought I did think, you know, his so JF Roy Roy Batty kills this man who literally toys around with life. He does, he creates yeah, his toy. Uh, yes. You know, like he, he to and I think he's expecting retribution at some point because did you notice all of the locks and guards on his door in that in that apartment in the Bradbury? Yeah, exactly. Which uh, is a magnificent building, by the way. Uh, also used in uh, a lot of movies, but one thing that comes to mind is uh, Jack Nicholson's Wolf. Uh, with Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer, it's used yeah. quite extensively there, as well as a whole bunch of other movies. Uh, oh, it's a beautifully photogenic um, um, building. Um, so, uh, I suggest uh, that Roy Batty is uh, a figure of profound nobility uh, in this movie. Um, he he confront he uh, basically is set on a, a self-appointed task, his own project, to uh, confront his creator and make the creator answer for his crimes. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, he is a tremendously important and we have to respect his attempt at saving his friends and and getting the creator to to stop their death but but again i I don't think he's a i think okay so he's i'm gonna i'm gonna revise my view he's as bad as deckard deckard's job has been to kill replicants so he's not morally um above reproach either yeah yeah okay good then uh except that uh perhaps uh roy batty is more poetic yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Deckard is a man of few words. Batty yeah. uh, has some of the greatest lines in movies ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. My, uh, fa- my favorite moment is when they're having this fight and you know going up toward the roof of the Bradbury. Yes, and, yeah. Um, and uh, I think Deckard takes a steel bar and whacks. Um, wax uh, Batty across the head, and Batty says, "Yeah, that's the spirit." It is yeah, right. a beautiful scene. Actually, it's a moving scene, one of the few moving scenes in a fight because he—you can sense 
that he is he is alive. He is enjoying this. And he is he's proud of Deckard at that moment. He really likes him. Yes, uh, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to go with uh, the famous the famous speech that. Uh, oh, Batty, that's a beautiful speech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually. Yeah, oh, I actually wrote down. Okay, so I found the original uh, draft uh, from David Peoples' uh, screenplay of what the speech was, and I'll read that first, and then uh, read uh, what uh, Rutger Hauer ended up saying. Okay, so the the original David Peoples' uh, draft was: "I've known adventures, seen places you people will never see. I've been off world and back." frontiers i've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the plutonian camps with sweat in my eyes watching Please stars stop. fight <laughs> oh god yeah <laughs> yes it just oh, was a couple yeah where's and then yeah well just there's like just another line a okay. felt wind in my hair riding oh. test boats off the black galaxies and seeing an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear i've You're seen it me, man. i've felt it and it's like you know like this is something like you know you oh. could you could see like william shatner's captain kirk saying something like this yeah it's like yeah no no master no mastery of prose oh. was, ex was exhibited there and then we have yeah. and then and rudger hauer thought much the same thing and says i'm not reading that and he went into his trailer uh, for like 15 minutes and he came out and he delivered this these 42 words I've seen things you people wouldn't believe attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gate all those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain time to time. die yeah, yeah. It gets me every time. Yeah, like amazing, it's just... amazing that and 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 again, one of the finest scenes in a movie, I think. Yeah, yeah, just, like, yeah, and the and the dove um, floating into the sky, playing into the sky. Yeah, and just the first, tremendously moving. And the first sunlight uh, in the movie was yeah. in that last shot. Like uh, that was the moment. Uh, that was. Uh, Batty's transcendence. Uh, that was his moment where he transcended his facticity uh, as a slave and uh, became something more. Uh, became. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, a, it's a, an amazing moment in film. And, yeah. and, and the film passes before you know it. There's not a moment that's wasted. All of the scenes are perfectly executed just one of the i think it's one of the the best films of the 20th century actually and i've said that for quite some time yeah it is it's truly a remarkable piece of celluloid um fun trivia uh the game that uh between uh sebastian jf sebastian and uh, tyrell the chess game uh do you know what, what this was supposed to be uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah. tell me. Yeah. It was uh, the immortal game of chess played in 1851 between uh, Adolf Anderson and Lionel Kurtzky uh, in London. Uh, yeah. Now, th this was the immortal game is and people have gathered this like this is not in the, the script. Uh, but people have looked at the arrangement of the board and the movement that uh, Tyrell and Bach are making, uh, moving their pieces, and there's like this is the immortal game, and it is it is frequently reproduced uh, to teach uh, simple themes of gameplay, and it is not a winning like it. It's an example of the romantic school of chess. Which uh, in which uh, characters make bold moves just to throw their their uh, opponents off guard. Like uh, it's like yes, I'm going to sacrifice my queen just because this will 
baffle my opponent. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, and um, yeah, so there's, uh, so it was that. And uh, yeah, again, nowhere in the script, but it just was like, this was the game that they happened to be playing uh, when they, when they moved the pieces as they did, which is really neat. Uh, and, and then that, but that whole chess motif in there too, like, sure. like, you know, that, that might bring to mind like a little film by Bergman, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, where no, it's, that's, that is a, a theme. And <laughs> yeah. Whenever you're confronting death, right. Yeah. You're playing chess. Yeah. 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 It, a lot of times. Yeah. I thought it was a, a fascinating movie. Um, so, um, is there a worst shot for this movie? Is there anything that, uh, on the 2007, uh, final cut of Blade Runner that you didn't like, or that could have been done away with? I'm going to say the only thing that I could have done without is the, um, where he's dreaming of the unicorn. Um, and when he falls asleep um, and we see that unicorn dream snippet, I'm assuming it was Deckard's dream. Um, I thought it's a little heavy handed, uh, not necessary, would have been fine without it. OK, yeah, uh, um, I think the only the reason it was there is just to finally settle the debate of whether he was a replicant or not. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it does that. Um, but I was convinced anyway with everything else in the film. Yeah, uh, I see. I see your point. Uh, I liked it because there was the. It was so stunning, uh, the dream of the unicorn. Uh, like that was the first time you see that that verdant green in the screen, True. and and True. it's like, and like so. There's there's a lot there, right? Like, so this is a glimpse, a brief glimpse into the interiority of an entity that we didn't know had interiority at all. Okay. Uh, you know, and this, and it is so brilliant. It is so uh, vivid that it's unmistakable uh, that it's, that it's reality is beyond question. Uh, like this is, me amplifying it a bit but you know like to me oh you am i back yeah okay yeah like this is to me uh this dream is so vivid uh it's not mistakable for a fiction at all and now you think you think about some of our analytic uh philosopher friends they're very quick to dismiss interiority dreams as having a diminished level of reality okay. uh, the the philosophers of mind you know like uh the that are driven by uh that take their jumping off point as gilbert ryle you know mm-hmm. and like merlu ponty in uh, phenomenology of perception just smacks this all down distinctly when he says yeah you know interiority like it is so real why do you know it's so real because it's so vivid it's impossible to call it anything else and be honest um you know and uh, i'm i'm gonna you know it doesn't bother me but i think it's the one scene i could have done without but i think it yeah i think you're right i think it does play this important role yeah yeah for me for me I, i love this film I love it from the first moment to the last moment and then watch it again. And I still, uh, I can't think of anything that I would do without. Uh, okay. I, I I think this is, I think the 2007 version is the perfect cut yeah. of celluloid. It is just beyond yeah. reproach in my mind. Uh, it's uh, outstanding. Um, yeah. It is. I'm glad we finally got to talk about it. And I know we'll be back to Ridley Scott at some point during our podcast in the future. But um, do you want to know what I've chosen for next time? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Tell me. Um, So um, Altered States, Ah. a Ken Russell film. Yeah. um, 
it's a, it, you know, it's a the reason we're there is a, the, the art director actually is the same, um, yeah. as Blade Runner. And, um, it's a visually stunning, interesting film that I really am interested to talk about. It's we're, we're, we're not in Blade Runner cat, uh, territory, but we're, I think in interesting film territory. So I look, forward I love to it. Yeah. I love, it. I love that movie. I love altered states and I love the book. Great. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so this will be great. We'll be talking about altered states next time. And as ever, uh, we're very appreciative for everybody who tunes in and listens. And I know we have a growing audience, uh, and uh, we invite people to join us on Facebook. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's so wonderful that we are actually like just sitting here geeking out, talking about movies and people are actually listening to this. This is awesome. Yeah. And we also invite your input. So not only through comments on Facebook, but you can leave um, voice messages if you have comments you want to direct towards us that we can address on future shows. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been a blast. I've been so looking forward to this conversation about this movie with you. And I'm so looking forward to uh, next week when we're talking about Altered States. That's one of my...